one particular treasure seeker who sits right next to me. Um, he's down in the nursery today. Last week, I, I preached a sermon entitled, This Book, Six Convictions That Every Christian Ought to Have About the Bible. And those convictions, if you remember them, are that this book is God speaking, this book is totally trustworthy, this book is able to be understood, this book is necessary, you need this book, uh, this book is enough, and this book is powerful. And as soon as I'd finished the benediction last Sunday, uh, Caleb reminded me that I'd forgotten the seventh point. Um, my usual practice is after I finish blessing you to head to the back, and as I do that, I take a look at his notes, and then I sign the bottom of the treasure seeker notes for him to indicate that I saw that he did a good job. And as he took his notes, I noticed he had written in a seventh conviction about Scripture that I hadn't mentioned. Um, now, he was way ahead of the curve on this because he and I t- talked about the sermon as it was being prepared. Uh, underneath those six convictions about scripture. So authority, inerrancy, clarity, necessity, sufficiency, efficacy. He wrote the word story. And number seven, next to story, was that every story whispers Jesus' name. He's right. And I sputtered in embarrassment and I tried to explain to him that I had covered that under number four. The necessity of scripture leads you to Jesus and he was unimpressed. So let's do something here. There's a church in Texas that does this, but you have a Bible? Let's lift up our Bibles here. This book is God speaking. This book is totally trustworthy. This book is able to be understood. You need this book. This book is enough. This book is powerful. And every story in this book whispers Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just heard it a few minutes ago. Isaiah saw your glory. You, the pre-incarnate Christ, in the throne room with Isaiah 700 years before you took flesh. Of course you're on every page of this book. Thank you for the gospel. Please help me to preach the gospel to those whom I love. Help me to do that by expounding the Bible in ways that are help us to see the forest for the trees. Jesus, come. Teach us about yourself now. In your great name, amen. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is so much deeper than most people realize. It's a big idea today. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is so much deeper than most people realize. You've already had the text read for you, so trusting that your Bibles are open, we'll just jump right into three aspects of saving faith in Jesus that communicate, I think, the depth of true faith. The penetrating and profound nature of real trust in Christ. If you've been with us over these months, you know that we've been studying John's gospel and that you may have heard the statistic that the word believe appears 99 times in 21 chapters. 
99 times. And here in our text this morning, we see the word seven times. And that means that about 10% of all the occurrences of believe in John's gospel are right here in our text today. 14 verses, seven mentions of the word believe. So what, let's ask the question again, as we have several times this series. What is believing in Jesus? The question couldn't be any more relevant to each and every one of us because the book of Acts says in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from sin's penalty, increasingly saved from sin's power, and one day, entirely freed from sin's presence. That's what Jesus came to do in the gospel. What's that worth? It's worth everything. So let's figure this out. What is saving faith? In our text today, it's three things. First, believing in Jesus is thoroughly a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This is an equal opportunity offender at this point, depending on which side of this truth you like to play. Believing in Jesus is thoroughly a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Well, we know what human responsibility is by and large. What do we mean when we say divine sovereignty? We mean the rule and the reign of God. God's sovereignty, as one author has put it, is God's exercise of God's power over God's creation. That's really good. Divine sovereignty. God's exercise of God's power over God's creation. That's divine sovereignty. So that when somebody exercises real faith in Jesus, you know God has been on the scene. Long beforehand with their souls, God has been at work. And on the other hand, it is entirely appropriate to say that we human beings are responsible. We are accountable and answerable to believe in such a way that we are commanded to believe in the Bible. We are obliged to believe in the Bible, and we are blameworthy if we do not believe in Jesus. And that seems to me to be the note that John is striking here in chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This ends what is called the book of science here just with a thud, doesn't it? The King James Version puts it perfectly. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That's the beauty of the King James, the the cadence of that, and even just the alliteration. So many miracles. Seven public signs to be precise. Let's review the territory. He's turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed the lame man. He fed a multitude. Healed a blind man. And then he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And yet... They still did not believe in him. John wouldn't have said it this way if they weren't completely culpable for their lack of faith. Unbelief in Jesus is blameworthy. 
We are in the wrong if we do not trust in Jesus. We are at fault. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 proclaims, The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's a command. We must trust Jesus. On the other hand, Don't you see something powerful at work on the other side of this truth in these verses? Yes, they still did not believe in him. That's true. As human beings, they are morally responsible for their unbelief. They're on the hook for it. At the same time, it must be said, God is sovereign over unbelief. The force of John's vocabulary in verses 38 to 40 is undeniable. Why didn't these folks believe? Verse 38. So that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled. A little so that in verse 38. That's a big so that. So that. It's huge. It indicates purpose. This verse is about divine predestination. One New Testament scholar, Don Carson, writes, This unbelief was not only foreseen by Scripture, but necessitated by Scripture. The word of the prophet in verse 38, The Lord, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's the unbelief on the first half of that verse. The the arm of the Lord, that's the miracles. That's the Old Testament way of talking about wonders and, and signs. Miracles. Verse 39 then tells us, therefore, they could not believe. So it's not just that these guys didn't believe. It's that they could not believe. They were unable to believe. Why the inability? Verse 40 is explicit. He, that's God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I I would heal them. Now, here in verse 40, I think you get a pretty strong dose of divine sovereignty, but also human responsibility again. See, He's blinded them, he's hardened them, and yet if they were to turn, he would heal them. Yes, he would. You say, what is this? Who's in charge here? Whose fault is this? God's or people's? You know the answer in this church. Yes. Yes, indeed. Believing in Jesus is thoroughly a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, let's just step back for a moment. I told you this is deep. Okay? God is in charge of our believing in Jesus. And yet, we are called at the same time to believe in Jesus. We see this in other places in Scripture. The, the unbelief of the Jews in the days of Jesus 
was a lot like the unbelief of the Jews in the days of Moses. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 29, 3 and 4. Your eyes saw the signs and those great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Did you hear it? Human responsibility. Your eyes saw divine sovereignty. The Lord has not given you eyes to see. So what does this mean for us in our mission? It means minimally two things. First, call people to believe in Jesus. Summon them to yield their lives to the risen king. Invite them, woo them, win them. Be a persuader. That felt like Puritan unction for a minute. That was powerful. Paul says we seek to persuade people. And at the very same time, the other encouragement would be get on your knees and beg for God to remove blinders. Beg God to be merciful to your family and your friends and your neighbors by granting them repentance and faith in Christ. In either case, note what we are not to do in view of truths like these. We are not to do nothing. God's sovereign, so I won't do anything to try to bring about the conversion of lost people on my list of five. That's one, one error. The opposite side, the opposite way we could fall off of this horse is to say we're responsible. People on my list of five are responsible, but they're so lost. They're so lost that not even God can do anything about it. We need to be careful to guard against that side. The first error needs someone to remember Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Paul says this. He's in a prison, and he says, the word of God is not bound, like me. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. Don't ever be so into God's sovereignty that you think that would yield lack of evangelism. That's silly. Paul thought so. And the second half of this is that we need to remember the words of Jesus. In John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I'll never cast out. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Well, on the one hand, get busy preaching. Get busy preaching the gospel to people that you love. And on the other hand, get busy praying. Believing in Jesus is thoroughly a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Second point today. Believing in Jesus is intimately related to who we fear most. God or people. Believing in Jesus is intimately related to who we fear most, God or people. Verses 42 and 43 are at once surprisingly encouraging and then quite a bit discouraging. 
Let's take a look. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It starts off very hopeful, doesn't it? And then it turns very doubtful. Is this true faith? We ask this question every time you see the word believe in John's gospel. And it's just, what is this? Is this the real deal? Well, before we shut the door on it, let's be careful to consider a couple of the individuals that might have been within that phrase, the authorities, that John might be talking about. Among these authorities eventually will emerge Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who in chapter 19 verses 38 to 42 give our Lord's body a decent burial. They believed. They were among the authorities. It's hopeful. At this point not confessing it for fear of being put out of the synagogue. So I don't want to overstate the case by saying that all of this here in chapter 12 is empty profession of faith. Nicodemus and Joseph are examples to the contrary. But we are wise to remember throughout John's gospel, as in all of life, there are those who profess faith in Christ and do not possess faith in Christ. There's a fair amount of fruitless faith in this world. And there is a fair amount of it in John's gospel too. So just a little review. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we learn about one of the Passover crowds. John tells us, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And if you remember, that word entrust is the same word in Greek as believe. So what John's saying is they believed him. He didn't believe them. They trusted in him. He didn't trust them. Or recall uh, Jesus' frustration before the healing of the official's son in chapter 4, verse 48. We're exasperated. Jesus cries out, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Or consider when he's teaching people in chapter 8. We read plain as day, chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And next verse, John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So they make profession of faith in him and it's like Jesus says, okay, we'll see. If you remain doggedly with my words, not just the works, not just the big show, but my words, then you're free. And the offense that these guys take to Jesus serving them notice like this is palpable. Oh, they're interested in his works, but they hate his word. 
And by the end of the chapter, these believers are picking up stones to throw at him. So what's the nature of the believing here? And with all of that in in verses 42 to 43, let's read it one more time. Just kind of let John talk again. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Would you want to bet your hands that these guys are true believers? I'd be slow. In John 5.44, maybe this is a key. John 5.44, Jesus says to the same group of listeners, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another but will not receive the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? What does that mean? It's just like the language in our passage today. Well, it's John Owen weekend here at Mount Free Church. So let's let Dr. Owen untangle this one for us. In a book written in 1678 called Understanding the Mind of God in Scripture, Owen observes, quote, In humility alone is their safety. The love of honor and praise among men is a corrupt affection of the mind. And this is so branded by our Savior as an inseparable obstacle against the admission of sacred light and truth that no more need be added thereunto. And then he references John 5.44 and John 12.43. How can you believe? In humility alone is there safety. That's what Owen says. The way that the Bible says it is that pride goes before a fall. Precisely. So is this true faith? Not if it stays this way. Luke 12 8 and 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, we read that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. That's what you need in evangelism. We're having an Academy Awards party at our house tonight. Pray for us. We need spirit not of fear. What do we need for our neighbors? Power and love and what else? Self-control. Take yourself in hand. Self-control. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. When speaking of the public proclamation of Christ in 1 Peter 3.14, Peter commands us, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And the book of Revelation would add, Revelation 21.7, that as for the cowardly, 
their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. As for the cowardly. That's the second death. So you say, what's the application? The application is simply the principle that believing in Jesus is intimately related to who you fear most. When God is your fear and your joy and your treasure and your preoccupation and your delight and your gladness and your drink and your food, you'll open your mouth to say a good word for Jesus. Of course you will. You just will. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you grow in the fields is what you load on those trucks. You can only export what you're manufacturing. You serve what's in your cupboard. Listen to the words of John Calvin, 1553. Calvin wrote, Let no man flatter himself who conceals his faith for fear of incurring the hatred of men. Calvin calls this foolish, beastly madness to be afraid of sharing your faith with someone. Foolish, beastly madness. He calls it one other thing that we shouldn't say on a Sunday morning, so I'll leave you to read that commentary. Please don't forget this week to take your list of five and get on your knees, move your feet, and open your mouth. Believing in Jesus is intimately related to who we fear most. You say, but I do believe in Jesus and don't be a coward. One final point today. Believing in Jesus is ultimately trusting in the one true God and living obediently in his light. Believing in Jesus is ultimately trusting in the one true God and living obediently in his light. Look with me as we close the words of our Savior. These are the last words that he gives to unbelievers. He's done talking to the world after verse 50. He just wants his disciples from chapters 13 on. He won't even talk to the folks who were crucifying him. So this is the last thing he says to the world. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And everyone, uh, sorry, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And I've come into the world as, as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and receives not my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, period. And he's done talking to the world. In John's gospel, anyway. Believing in Jesus is ultimately trusting in the one true God and living obediently in his light. I hope you see those two points in these final verses. That's all I'm doing is chasing that word believe through these paragraphs. That's it. This is nothing that anyone here couldn't do. The first point is that belief is a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The second point is that believing has a lot to do with who we fear most. And now notice how believing in Jesus really is. is, is just 
when you believe in Jesus, you believe in the one true God. And then if you believe in Jesus, you will live like it. That's it. So for the first half of point three, notice again what Jesus says in verse 44. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Or 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Or verse 50. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So the claim that Jesus is making here in this paragraph and in this sanctuary by proxy this morning, I'm always amazed at what preaching is, the point that Jesus is making is one that is contested everywhere as we leave this building today in the 21st century. Um, John says the same thing but with just a slight tweak in 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is as true today as when John first wrote. Um, St. Augustine put it memorably when he said, It is good to believe in Christ. It is a great good to believe in Christ. And a great evil not to believe in Christ. Because of who he's connected to. Do you believe in Christ today? Amen. I know you do, Jervis. Is your faith... Your trust, your treasure, your whole life in Jesus. Because if it is, it's in the one true God. The God who made you and loves you and is coming in glory again to judge you. The living and the dead and whose kingdom will have no end. If you haven't, don't waste another minute. Turn from your sin today. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you do know Jesus, I'm calling you on the authority of this text today to live like it. Learning, loving, and living the gospel. The gospel is to be believed. And that means by God's grace that it is to be lived you hear the voice of your Lord if you know him in verses 47 and 48 if anyone hears my words and does not keep them the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day we should sweat the details in our discipleship and in our small groups what's the great commission teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. Liberalism is not just a disease of certain churches. Liberalism is a poison in the veins of every person. And I'm not talking about politics necessarily. I'm thinking about the desire to be free from the word of God in our mood, our methods, our message, or our morals. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is so much deeper than most people realize. The unbelief here in John chapter 12 is, as one commentator I read put it, large-scale, catastrophic unbelief. 
And it's not at all unlike the unbelief of the 21st century in America. The analogy is so fitting. With all of our privilege, with all of our access to the Christian gospel, true faith is genuinely hard to come by. Why? Because believing in Jesus is thoroughly a product of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Believing in Jesus is intimately related to who we fear most, God or people. And believing in Jesus is ultimately trusting in the one true God and living obediently in his light. There's not one of those points that the American understanding of the gospel, and I might even say the evangelical understanding of the gospel in America, threatens that. Next Sunday is March 9th, and it's also the first Sunday of Lent, the first of six successive Sundays moving up to Easter Sunday. Can you believe it? Lent is a season dedicated to deepening our understanding of the gospel as a church. It is a time in the life of a Christian fellowship that is marked by both fasting and feasting, which is why for the second part of that, that we will be coming to the Lord's table every Sunday over the next six weeks. That's why we didn't do it today. Growing upward in our adoration of the Savior and growing downward in our humiliation before the Savior. And on top of it all, the privilege is ours over the next six weeks to study what sometimes is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's chapters 13 to 19 in John's Gospel. It contains some of the richest teaching that Jesus gives us in all the Bible. I told you back around Christmas time that we were going to do a deep dive into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's coming over the next few weeks. It's going to be a beautiful Lenten season. But right now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I simply pray two things. First, that you would make unbelievers believers. That you and your sovereignty would rise up and turn the lights on cause the dead to live. And I pray too, Father, for those dead, I I pray that they would live. I pray that they would hear with the ears of their heads and with the ears of their hearts and that they would turn. They would turn. No one can do that for them. They would turn from their sins and put their faith in you, Jesus, learning you, loving you, living you. And Lord, for all here who I know as many, not only profess faith in Christ, but possess it. Please help us to live it this week. Please give us such joy before Jesus. You are with us even to the end of the age. So help us to turn from old, gnawing, nagging sins. Help our church to be pulsing and alive with love. May we live our union with Christ in the resurrection this week, and may that lead us to just all kinds of crazy conversations with folks that don't know Jesus. Please open doors, surprise us, just grant us to be with our lists of five in intentional ways this week, and then help us to open our mouths and say a good word for our King, in whose name we pray, amen.